Well, I trust that it, it was good for us to hear the whole letter, to get the full context. Um, I, I would encourage you, Scripture, a, a lot of times, we're, we're told to read, read the Word aloud. Uh, certainly, this is a practice of the early church. I, I don't think um, I don't think we do that as much as they did. So uh, I was in my house just a couple days ago by myself. I was just walking around and reading, uh, reading the letter of First Peter, and I was um, I was just sad that we're done, that, that today is our last day in this book. I look forward to what's coming next for sure, but uh, yeah, this, it's been good to be in this book. So like I said, uh, each week we have a truth statement for, uh, for our passage, and here's today's truth statement. In humility, God's people stand firm in their faith by the grace that God gives, looking forward to eternal glory in Him. I'll read it one more time. In humility, God's people stand firm in their faith by the grace that God gives, looking forward to eternal glory in Him. And as we read today, um, my guess is you you could see how today's passage really just flows uh, right out of last week's passages. He says uh, at the end of verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So as God's people, we're we're told, Peter uses this metaphor of of getting dressed. He says, clothe yourselves. I I want you to put on humility every day. These are like the the work clothes of God's people. If we had a uniform, our uniform would be putting on humility every day. Not only do we humble ourselves towards one another, like he instructed us in verse 5, but we humble ourselves before God, our creator, as well. And it's certainly enough, right? Peter could have, as an apostle, just commanded us to humble ourselves before the Lord, but he also gives us reasons that, that that is good for us. He says that God opposes the proud. That's a pretty good reason in and of itself to be humble. He says that God gives grace to the humble. He says that his mighty hand exalts the humble, and his mighty hand cares for the humble. If you look through Scripture, we see that God has a a strong response to the pride and arrogance of people and a strong response to the humility of people before him. The proud think that they do not need God. Uh, They they are arrogant. They trust in themselves. It's this mentality that I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I I trust in my own abilities, my own wisdom, my my know-how, my experience, whatever it is. So if you want to be opposed by God, be proud, be arrogant. Think too highly of yourself. Have a skewed view of your importance and greatness. But it's the humble, they come before God and they see their need for God. Do we want God's grace? Do do we want to be given what we do not deserve at all? Well, then humble yourself before him who loves you. God loves it when we put our trust in him. Verse 6 again, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, the, the proud face the mighty hand of God in opposition. And that's a, that's a scary opponent. But the humble, instead of God's mighty hand being a foe, it's what lifts up the believer. 
And we don't know exactly what the timing of this exaltation is. Uh, my guess, just looking at the letter as a whole and, and the future orientation of so much of this letter, my guess is that, that this is an exaltation after this life for believers. Uh, I, I don't know if you were like me as a kid, but I was, I was kind of obsessed with time. Like I, I, I would always ask my parents, like, when will we be there? What time's dinner? When can I go to my friend's house? When, will, when, when are people coming over? When can I open presents? I loved knowing when something was going to happen, but so often we don't know when. We know who God is, though, and we're asked to humbly trust that he will do what he's promised. And we're, we're a people who've placed their hope in God. Yeah, so there should be this expectancy that God's people always have, eager for Christ to return, to gather his people and as we've gone through Peter's first letter, one of the challenging themes to me has been, do I live with expectancy? Do I, do I really live as if Christ is going to return? Do I, do I believe? Yes, I believe but that he's going to return, that he's going to gather his people, that there will be judgment, right? that we'll dwell forever with God. But I don't think about it that often. Not nearly as often as, as it looks like Peter wants us to. He, he wants us to have this future orientation always in the forefront of our thinking. And the reason is so that it would shape our daily lives. When we live with this expectation that, that Christ will do what he said he will do, that scripture is true, man, it would change everything about our lives. God will make good on his promise, which is what gives us a real hope. Verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And some translations, you might notice, start a, a new sentence in verse 7. Uh, other translations, like the ESV, it's a continuation from verse 6. I'm told in the Greek that, that there's no break here, that it's just, it's one sentence. And, and besides that being sort of interesting, here's why it matters. Verse 7 shows us that, that this is how we humble ourselves before God. It's by casting our cares on him. There's an acknowledging that I need Jesus, that I cannot solve my problems, especially my biggest problem, which is sin. So humility, it's directed towards God, and it means that we're trusting in God. We're trusting that he's good. We're trusting that he's merciful, that God is just, that God is loving and compassionate. We're trusting that he has the power to do everything he's promised to do. We're trusting in Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension. I could go on and on and on, but we're, we're trusting that God is who he says he is through his word. Worrying, Peter's helping us to see, is not trusting in God, and, and it's a symptom of pride. I was reading in Isaiah 51 uh, this week, and it starts off in, in verse 1. God says, to the righteous... I tell you to look where you've come from. Look, look where I brought you from. Look, look, look at the rock that I hewn you from. And he, he goes on and on. Verse 12, he says this, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? And he's talking about Israel's enemies here, right? Physical people. He's saying, who are you? that you're afraid of this enemy, the son of man who is made like grass, right? This, this guy will die, this enemy of yours. He says, have you forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation? He's just, he goes on and on and on to give the resume of God. And I just love that phrasing. Who are you? Who are you to be afraid? 
Who am I to be afraid of of anything, to carry these worries? When we know who God is, it should change everything. When we realize that God is our good provider, when we see that God is actually in control of everything. And 2020 has been a strange, strange year. And yet we can trust that God knows what he's doing, that God is, is in all of this. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge and his power. So he said, who are you to be afraid of anything? Who are you to hold on to these worries? Have you forgotten who the Lord, your maker, is? Right? Do we see how humility is trusting in the Lord? And it doesn't mean that we can see exactly what God's doing or exactly why God is doing it, but we trust in him. So when we face hard, hard circumstances, maybe terrifying circumstances, circumstances that feel like, like it could just crush us, we, we cast that to the Lord. This is humility before the Lord. Right? Christians live out humility by casting their anxieties on him. But do not think of it like fishing. Okay? When I go fishing, I cast out, and the plan every time is to reel it back in. Every single time I cast my rod, I'm planning on reeling it back in, and I'm hoping there's a fish involved. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes I find myself casting to the Lord. I I pay God lip service in prayer, professing that I trust him, when in reality the whole time my plan is to reel that back in so I can worry about it myself. The casting Peter writes about it's more like taking a rock and, and throwing it into the Grand Canyon. There's no, there's no hope. There's no uh, facade that you'll ever get that back. You're casting it to God and banking on him doing what is best, which hopefully we realize that sometimes that means that God may do or allow exactly what we don't want, what we do not think is best, what we do not prefer. But in humility, we put our trust in God. Being anxious is instead holding on to this concern with this delusional thought that by worrying about it, that we can somehow impact the outcome. Worrying doesn't fix circumstances. And Peter gives us a great reason to cast our anxieties to God because he cares for you, right? We're not casting our anxieties to a God that's indifferent about us, a God that hates us. We're casting anxieties to someone who loves and cares for you. You're casting your anxieties to the Father who sent his only Son to die for you. So if he's already demonstrated his love for you in that way, you can trust him for today's needs. And do do you know, do you really believe that God cares for you? Do you trust that he's all-powerful, that he loves you, that he will always do what's best, even if it looks really, really hard, maybe even unbearable? When we're worried about our stuff, it it keeps us from living the way God's intended for us to. It it keeps us focused on ourselves. Um, One thing that I'm often tempted with when life is hard, I have thoughts like, God, my world's falling apart. How in the world can I care for others? Like, who's going to take care of me? And the answer is, no, we trust in God to take care of everything we're worried about. I'm not saying we, we don't take personal responsibility and do what we're supposed to do, but we can trust that God will show up, that God will provide, really that God is actually always with us. Do you keep, do you let worries keep you from loving others? 
I was really blessed just this last week. Um, There's a woman in our church. She had uh, a prayer request for a handful of us to pray for. She's had a really time-sensitive need. I won't go into all of it because the story takes way too long. Um, But I was praying for it. And if I'm honest, looking back now, I, uh, in my earthly, human, fleshly thinking, I was like, man, I don't know how God (laughs) is going to, to provide for this. Like, it just felt impossible to me. And I was humbled uh, when, when I got a text uh, explaining exactly what God did. And it was beyond what I had even imagined. And we, we trust in God. We trust in the one who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Now, verse 8 gives us something uh, that we could certainly find ourselves being anxious about. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And back in, in chapter 4, verse 7, he said something similar. He says, the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled and, again, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, you might remember that Peter was one of the guys that Jesus asked to pray on the night of his arrest, and Peter kept falling asleep. I'm sure that this exhortation in 1 Peter is flavored by the experience of that night. He tells us, be watchful. So this is a spiritual alertness. As a a Christian, we believe in a spiritual world. There's a reality. It's not just flesh and blood. There's a spiritual world, and we're to be alert. Uh, Sin wants to creep into our hearts, into our minds. We're to know where we're vulnerable So don't put yourself near temptation. That would be wisdom. That would be spiritual alertness. If if I had a friend that was an alcoholic and and he wanted to stop drinking and and he asked me for help and we're coming up with like a game plan, right, of some ways to kind of put guardrails in his life, one of the things we'd probably do is, hey, your drive from work, let's change your commute so so you don't even drive near that bar that you used to always go to. As a married person, it's wise to have guardrails in your life with people of the opposite sex. There, there are channels on TV that you really should never check out, right? You shouldn't even go to the guide to read what's on it. There are movies that, that I just I don't watch because I've, I know that that actor's been in, in these roles over and over again. It's just not good for me. And the opposite of being alert spiritually is, is like a spiritual drowsiness. Uh, I'm sure all of us... Um, have, have had a time where we're driving and, and, and it's late. We've been driving for a long time and, and we realize we're getting a little too tired to drive. Like it's, it's not safe because, because if we even for a moment fall asleep, it could be deadly for us and others. Spiritual drowsiness is even more dangerous. Right? We don't want to fall asleep at the wheel spiritually. Well, why? Peter reminds us the devil's real. We we have this kind of cartoonish caricature of the devil. We we picture the horns, maybe a pitchfork, a weird tail. He's dressed in red. Peter here pictures him as a lion. I don't know if any of you saw the video that's recently come out. I don't know if it's just last week or last few weeks. Uh, It's of a guy named Kyle in Utah. Uh, I think he was near Provo, Utah, in a canyon, and he just wanted to go on a jog. So he's he's on this trail, and the, the trail went uh, pretty close to this mountain lion and her cubs. And mama mountain lion didn't like that at all. So the mountain lion begins to follow Kyle, this man. And Kyle knows right away. I mean, the mountain lion is hissing. He breaks out his his cell phone, because that's what we all do nowadays. He breaks out the cell phone, 
and, and tapes, or not tapes, that doesn't even exist anymore. He videos uh, this mountain lion pursuing him for six minutes. He's walking backwards as this mountain lion continues to hiss at him. And, and it's, it is terrifying watching it. You should, you should look it up. It's terrifying watching it, even through a screen, because there's times where the mountain lion lunges at him, and you can see her claws. Her fangs are hanging out. You can hear the hissing. Her strong tail, it's amazing. She uses that tail to like balance her as she lunges forward, mouth wide open. I can't imagine facing even uh, just a mountain lion, let alone a a full-on lion. The Bible's so good to remind us that this battle is real, that there's real danger. It's a spiritual battle, and our adversary is the devil. The, The good news there is, by calling him our adversary, our enemy, Peter's reminding us that we're on God's side, that, that God, God is on our side, who you might remember in Scripture is often pictured as a lion, right? He's the, Jesus is the lion of Judah, and, and Satan, he's the king of knockoffs. Of course, of course he will try and, and look as impressive as God, but he isn't. But make no mistake, the devil wants to devour you. Right? And I don't just mean like taking your life. He, the, the goal is to snuff out your faith. He wants to extinguish the light right out of your life. He wants you to be so beaten down and discouraged that trusting in God doesn't even make sense to you, that it's just too much. You might remember that Jesus told Peter, he said that Satan asked to sift you like wheat. And, and I, I'm not agricultural. I don't even really know what it means to sift wheat. But you get that the picture is not good, that it's painful, that it's hard. And Jesus responds. He, he tells him, I prayed for you. He doesn't say, though, hey, I prayed and God and I agreed. The Father and I agreed. We're not going to let this happen. No, he, he, he said, I prayed that your faith will not fail. How good is it that Jesus prays for us? as we're going through any number of things. Peter tells us, be sober-minded. Not because the devil's sneaking up, right? He's pretty clear here. The devil's prowling like a roaring lion. There is no sneaking. Just like Kyle in the canyon, he knew that lion was there. We need to be firing on all cylinders. Kyle knew uh, several things to do. He got big, right? He, he had his arms up the whole time. He was trying to look as big as possible. He was talking loud to try and be scary and intimidate, just like he heard if you encounter a mountain lion, you do these things. His brain was alert. He was looking for ways to fight off this lion he was facing. It's similar to us. Right? We need to be sober-minded, not, not drunk. Right? You fight a lion drunk, you have no chance. Your only chance is being alert, being ready, being fully dependent on God. And I wonder, why is the lion roaring? Because roaring is really scary. When a lion roars at you, it's to scare you. It's to freak you out. We might remember back in chapter 3 as Gypsy read to, to women, but I think it applies to all of us, Peter said, I don't want you to be afraid of anything that's frightening. And what, what, a, what an interesting phrase. Don't even be afraid of what is scary, but instead in humility, we cast our worries on God, remembering that he cares. Verse 9, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Someone wrote that the roar of the lion is its suffering. Jesus. It's suffering because of Jesus. Suffering is supposed to make us afraid. 
Suffering's trying to get us to quit trusting Jesus, just like the roar of the lion is to freak us out. And Peter says, resist him. He said, be firm, but firm in what? Firm in your own strength, firm in your, your wisdom, your ability to persevere. No, it's to be firm in your faith, trusting in God. Your confidence is in God, that he will be faithful, that he will give you what you need to endure, just as he is for Christians all over the world. Uh, there's a story of a man who uh, grew up in Russia, um, he grew up in a Christian home, and, and when he was a kid, there were churches all over the place. His family went to church every week. But over the years, communism snuffed out uh, really all the churches near him. By the time he was an adult with, with a wife and two boys of his own, the closest church was a three-day journey. So they didn't get to go to church much. Uh, it was once, maybe twice a year that they went to church. And one day, he said to his wife, he said, you might think I'm crazy. I know I don't have any training, but I think I need to start teaching our boys about, about Jesus, about the Bible. I want to just break out our Bible and read to them, and I'll teach them everything that I know. So they started doing this, and he, he didn't know, but his wife had been praying this for years. So they broke out the family Bible, and at first they, they started in the Gospels. And they would read a story, and the boys would retell the story, and he would teach them like, what, is this, what this tells us about God, what it tells us about us and our need for, for Christ. And then the boys, after a while, they said, hey, can we sing like they do at that church that we go to once a year? So, so they started writing down the songs that they could remember the words to, and they started singing those songs. And This is a small village they were in. And the houses were, were pretty close to each other. So especially when it's hot out, windows are open, neighbors could hear what was going on. Uh, some could hear the singing. Some could hear the stories about Jesus. And, and pretty soon they were getting knocks at the door asking if they could join. And by the time this, this little gathering got up to 25, the local authorities caught wind of it, and, and they were not happy. And they started threatening Dimitri. Uh, but their, their church kept growing, and, and, and they stopped just threatening him. They would beat him, and, and he continued. He continued to teach every week, and, and, and finally it got up to 75 people, and the authorities had had enough of it. They arrested him. They took him to a prison a 1,000 kilometers away. There were 1,500 prisoners in, in this facility. He was the only Christian. He lived in this tiny prison cell for the next 17 years. And he said that there were two spiritual habits that, um, that he had uh, from growing up with his dad that, uh, that were the key to his survival. One was every morning as the sun rose, he'd face the east, facing the sun. He'd, he'd raise his hands and he would sing this song to Jesus every day, this song of praise. It was the same song every day. And the other prisoners hated it. They would freak out. They would yell at him. They'd call him names. They would curse at him. They'd take their, their, their metal cups and they would bang it on the prison cell trying to get him to, to, to be quiet. They'd take food and other grosser things and they'd throw it at him in the hopes that he would stop. And the second habit that he had was every time he'd find a, a scrap of paper, and it was always a scrap, like it was, it was just always a little piece, he, he would take it, like if he found one in, in the prison yard, he'd take it, he'd put it in his pocket, and then when he got back to his cell, he'd take this, this little stub of a pencil he had or a little piece of charcoal, and he would write in tiny handwriting as much of God's word as he could think of. 
Like whatever verses popped into his mind that, that just through the years he, he, had, he had memorized. And, and, and then he would he'd take that little piece of paper, and there was a, a part of his cell in the corner uh, that water w- would just kind of drip down. He didn't know what it was coming from. But he, he'd take it, and he'd get it wet, and he'd reach as high as he could and place it up on the wall. And he, this is like his little offering to the Lord. And eventually a guard would see it. And they'd ask, what is that? And they'd they'd take it down, read it. They'd be furious at him, and and they'd beat him for it. And and these beatings were absolutely brutal. But but he continued, both the singing and and, and writing scripture, whenever he found a scrap of paper. He said that far worse than the beatings, though, uh, was just not having any Christians. He didn't have fellowship with another believer for 17 years. He, He didn't have another Christian that he could be encouraged by or that he could encourage and yet he still wouldn't break. And they did uh, unspeakable things to his family. Uh, eventually, just in desperation to break him, they, they lied to him. They told him that they killed his wife and that his uh, boys had been uh, taken away um, by the state. And, and this proved to be uh, too much. He, he couldn't handle it. And one night he, he came to him and he said, all right, you win. I'll sign, I'll sign whatever confession you want. I just need to get out and find my boys. And so they said, okay, they'd spend that night preparing a confession. And it was basically something like uh, that, that he did not believe in Jesus, that he was actually a paid agent of the, the Western governments trying to bring down the USSR. And he went to his cell that night, just defeated. He, he could not believe that he'd failed Christ. At that same time, the Holy Spirit had, had moved his wife, sons, and his brother to come together and pray. They just knew that they needed to pray for him that night. Miraculously, God revealed to him that, that at that moment, his wife and sons uh, and, and his brother were praying for him. And the guards came the next morning, right, just feeling triumphant, and he said he wouldn't sign. He said, I know you've lied to me. God revealed to me last night that my wife is alive, that my boys are with her, and that they have continued in Christ and the guards tried to dissuade him. They tried to silence him, but they couldn't. And day after day, they'd try to break him. But he was, uh, his resolve to stand in Jesus was stronger than ever. And then one day in the prison yard, he found something he'd, he'd never seen in his 17 years there. There was a whole sheet of paper. And he, he was just beside himself. He couldn't even imagine like, how much scripture he was going to be able to write down on paper. But as if that wasn't enough, he found a full pencil. <laughs> 17 years, he'd never seen a full pencil. He had this little stub where he wrote with charcoal. So he, he was elated, and he knew it was going to cost him. But, but he, he took that paper and that pencil, got back to his cell, and he just wrote and wrote and wrote everything he could remember from Scripture. He wrote down songs that he could remember. He wrote down praises to God of the ways that that God had provided for him, and he stuck it up on that wall as an offering. Well, it didn't take long for the the guards to spot spot it. They they saw it right away, and and they beat him right away for it. But they decided that wasn't enough. They were going to actually execute him this time. And as they marched him down past the other cells, and remember, there's 1,500 prisoners these other prisoners stood up one by one, and they faced the east. They raised their hands, and they sang the song that they'd heard him sing every day. He said it was like the most magnificent choir he had ever heard. His guards freaked out. They, they took their hands off him, backed away, and one of them said, Who are you? And he stood up straight, and he said, 
I'm a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus. Pretty soon after this, they released him from prison. He was reunited with his family. God was faithful to Dimitri as he willingly suffered for Christ. And throughout Christian history, there's been great persecution against Christians. It's estimated that that since Jesus, there have been 70 million Christians who've been martyred for the name of Jesus. When a Christian suffers, they stand with all Christians who have suffered for the name of Jesus. Now, really trusting in Jesus, standing firm in Jesus, in your faith, does not mean that the devil won't bite at you. It doesn't mean that his claws will not get you. It does mean, though, that when the teeth bite, when the claws gash you, that you don't stop loving Jesus. You don't stop trusting in Jesus' blood. It means that uh, by God's grace, you continue to trust the Lord even when your world is torn apart. You stand firm in your faith by trusting that God will do exactly what he promises in verse 10 here. It says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter reminds us of, of multiple things that he said throughout the letter. Right? He tells us that this is temporary. After you've suffered a little while, All of this is temporary. Even if we have 80, 90, 100 years in this life, it does not compare to eternity. This world is not the final home for believers. We are exiles. And while suffering hurts, it will not last. He reminds us of God's grace, that that our God is a God that gives us grace daily. He continues to supply us with what we need by his grace. Peter reminds us, of glory, that, that, that we look to glory with Christ, that our reward will be greater than we can imagine. It will make the riches of this world seem so cheap. Uh, I stumbled upon an article uh, a few months ago, um, and it was about super yachts. I didn't even know super yachts were a thing. I figured regular yachts were enough, but there's super yachts now. And there's this one that was uh, built in uh, 2014. It's called the Kismet. And it's, uh, it is, hands down, everyone agrees, this is the nicest super yacht on the planet. It's 312 feet in length. It has five decks. Each deck has a bar, and at least one bar and dining suite in it. Uh, there are accommodations for up to 16 guests in eight cabins. It's, I mean, the bathrooms, the, the hallways, the staircases, the art, it's just opulent, beyond anything that that you can imagine. So this yacht can be rented, of course. Um, For one week, it costs $1.3 million to rent this yacht. Jay-Z and Beyonce were spotted on it back in 2018. This yacht is, it's amazing, okay? Um, I would love to even take a tour of it, right? The, The art's ridiculous over the top. It's not like even if I could afford it, I'd want any of these things. But just to just to go in this place and see what these minds have come up with on this yacht would be absolutely incredible. But I promise you that what awaits God's people will make that boat seem like a floating Motel 6. I'm not saying that there's going to be a super yacht version in in heaven that's going to blow that thing away. But what I am saying is that our reward is unlike anything this world tries to lure us with and promise us. And, And Peter reminds us that our reward is secure in Christ. It's Jesus himself who will make sure that we make it to glory with him. 
Yes, in, in some ways we partner with God, right? We're responsible to, to believe, to trust in him, and yet it's Christ. Praise God, it's Christ that will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish believers. You're not banking on what you can do. You're banking on what Christ has done and what he says he will do. So we look to eternal glory with Christ Our reward will be great. Like he said back in chapter 1, imperishable, unfading, undefiled, that that, that Christ will bring this about. Our reward is secure in Jesus. And verse 11, just in case you aren't convinced that you'll be able to stand up against the schemes of the devil, Peter reminds you who has dominion and for how long. He says uh, in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There will be no end to Christ's reign. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. As difficult as this life is for his exiled people, we are his chosen possession, Peter reminds us. As bad as this world can get, we're in the hands of the mighty God who will exalt us. For believers, this world, it's as bad as it gets. For those who trust in Christ's work on the cross, we cannot fathom what it would be like to dwell with God forever in glory. Right? You, you read Revelation, and John says, man, I don't know how to say this. It's kind of like this. It sort of looks like this. Man, we don't have words to describe what it will be like. Verse 12, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Verse 12, I think, makes it clear what the goal of the letter is for Peter. He wants believers everywhere of all times to stand firm in the grace of God, no matter what trials we face, right? And we have an enemy that that wants to tear us apart. And Peter says, stand firm. He wants us to remember that this life It's like a blink of an eye. This life is not what we live for because it doesn't compare to what God has in store for his people. So we don't live for the pleasures of this world. We live to honor Christ. And I think Peter's been really clear about this. We want others to join us for eternity. I hope that we haven't missed the evangelistic flavor of this whole letter, that we, like he talked to us about subjecting ourselves, right, to rulers, to people that mistreat us so that we, we can hopefully point to Jesus. We return good when we're given evil. We, we strive to live holy lives, praying that it will open a door so that we have the opportunity to share about Christ, right? That we will get to share about Jesus who suffered and died for sin so that you can be forgiven of everything you've ever done. How great would it be to, to enjoy God forever with, with your friend, or, or your neighbor, your coworker, your family member that, that you told about Jesus. Right? Maybe you're praying for them for years and years, and you're just looking for opportunities, like searching Scripture to help them understand, to see how good Jesus is. And then in eternity, you get to be with them as you worship Christ because they turn their heart to Jesus. God, I pray that you give us hearts that are ready to talk about you, even with those who seem totally opposed to you. I want to read the the truth statement for the whole book again. 
God's chosen people should faithfully endure present suffering by living holy and honorable lives while awaiting their future hope. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are his. He has chosen you to be a part of his own people. He's paid for you. He's purchased you by his own blood, by his grace. You will endure to the end because he has determined it. This life will be difficult, right? We, we will face hardship. You will face persecution in different forms as a believer. You'll undoubtedly face deep pain, probably rejection in this life. There will be seasons where it just might seem totally unbearable. But Peter reminds us this is temporary. James described our life as like a vapor or a mist. It's a blink of an eye. No matter how good or bad this life is, it doesn't compare to the 100% sure hope that we have in Christ. We have an inheritance in him that we cannot fathom. So we look forward to our future with our Savior while living now in Christ by his grace in a world that needs believers to live honorable, holy lives, just ready to share about Jesus and the hope that we have in him. We pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we uh, could, could spend the last three months going through this letter together. God, I, I pray that even as we, even as we move on now uh, to something else on Sundays, I, I pray that the words from Peter's letter to these early churches would stick with us. God, would you, would you grow us? Would you grow us in, in, in our faith? God, would, would you grow us in, 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 in being alert and being sober-minded? God, would we just long to be a people that point to how awesome you are, even if that means that, that we're rejected, even if that means that we're mistreated, even if that means that, that we're mocked and laughed at. Lord, would, would, we, would we stand united with brothers and sisters across the world that are suffering for you right now? Jesus, would, would we be a people that, that would do anything to have the opportunity to talk about you? God, we, we confess how often we're just cowards, Lord. We, we confess that so often we're, we're afraid of what people are going to think, what people might say. God, we change that in us. We, we don't seem to be able to. We, we need you to do that. Will you give us mouths that are just ready to share about you and lives that, that are honorable, lives that point to you, God, not because we're just these great people, but, but God, would we, be, would we live such holy lives that it, it's clear that it cannot be us doing this, that it has to be the creator of all things. Jesus, we, we love you. It's your name. In your name we pray. Amen.